manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 68, September 2023. English Through the Ages, a conversation with David Crystal. Hello, Paul Meyer here. It's the beginning of a new academic year and a big thank you to all those drama school instructors and university theatre department profs who use my textbook, Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen. If you're a teacher yourself and want to adopt my book for your class, get a discount for your students and a free copy for yourself, well, you'll find all the details at paulmeyer.com. See Information for Instructors under the About tab on the menu bar. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. And since that moment, we are a colony of the United States. The United States avoids the word colony. They call it territory. But uh, as I told once to President Clinton, if you look about that word territory, you find it in the Constitution of the United States written in the 18th century. If you guessed Puerto Rico, congratulations. It was Ideas Puerto Rico 1, contributed by David Neville. Thanks, David. The subject was 90 years of age when David recorded him back in 2011. He is a Harvard-educated scholar, but after his U.S. education, returned to old San Juan, where he lived the rest of his life. To hear the whole recording, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com, drill down to Caribbean, and then Puerto Rico. Now this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years. We milked the cows. We fed the chickens. You slopped the pigs. <laughs> and then you went off to work. You, we raised tobacco. That was the main crop. And we also, of course, raised garden. We raised our food. Get the answer next time. My usual reminder. If you aren't listening to me on palmeyer.com, switch over. And from the Other Services menu tab, select In a Manner of Speaking, and then click Episode number 68. You'll find lots of information and extra material there, not available on other podcast channels. My guest this month is our old friend, David Crystal. He returns for what's becoming a regular annual visit. Thanks for joining me again, David, on In a Manner of Speaking. It's a pleasure, Paul. Nice to be here. Or there, I'm never quite sure. I'm here and you're there. It's an existential uh, dilemma, isn't it? Where am I? Yes. So today, we promised ourselves we would do a kind of a lightning tour of English pronunciation from earliest times. This was Cameron's suggestion, by the way. So yeah, let's go back before there was an English. I mean, what was spoken in the British Isles before the Anglo-Saxon takeover? Well, the, uh, there were the, the Celtic languages, maybe some Latin. And, and what did the Romans encounter in AD 43? When they colonized Britain, is Britonic, right? One of the Celtic languages? Dynasty. Yes, that's right. The uh, the Celtic languages, or the language that lies behind the modern Celtic languages, right, comes right. in from Europe towards the end of the you know the BC era, and the Celts settled all over the country. There were people here before them, the Picts up in Scotland, for example, about whom very little is known. Probably other groups around too. But anyway, the Celts settled in, and we therefore have today Scottish Gaelic up in Scotland, yes. and the old language of Cumbria, Cumbrian, uh, which no longer exists, and then down in Cornwall, Cornish. That's a Celtic branch of the Celtic yeah. tongue, right? Absolutely, and being revived at the moment, and of course, where I live in Wales, Welsh, and then over the channel into Ireland for Irish Gaelic and down across the English Channel into Brittany for Breton. So that's the family of Celtic languages. Mm -hmm. And they were, I mean, everybody spoke a variety or other of Celtic, no question about that. In come the Romans, and they bring Latin, of course, or a, a vulgar Latin um, into the country. And there was a great deal of bilingualism uh, at that time. We're talking, you know, the turn of the millennium um, and the centuries, first, second, third century AD and so on. And uh, that was the way it was until the Anglo-Saxons arrived in 449 AD, coming across from Europe, invited in by one of the kings who was in trouble, wanted some help. And he invited the Anglo-Saxons in. 
Remind us where the original location of the Angles and, and the Saxons was. Is Yes, Angles, Anglo-Saxons. According to the historian Bede, uh, three groups of people came over in their boats. The Angles, which were probably from you know, northern Europe, modern-day France, Belgium, that sort of area. Uh, the Jutes, who are definitely uh, from the Denmark area. There's a Jutland there, even to this day. Right. And the Saxons, who nobody's very sure about, uh, probably Germany, because of Saxony and so yes. on. I mean, the word Saxon simply means somebody who wields a seach, seach meaning a sword. They could be from anywhere, but probably Germany. Yeah. I have never gone back further than Celtic tongues, but you tell me now that they were people who crossed the Channel too. So were, how long has the British Isles been humanly populated? Well, I, I've no idea. You have to ask an archaeologist about that, but an awful long time, certainly. The trouble is that, that there aren't any, any, any records. No. But we know from things like Stonehenge um, that there were you know, populations here going way, way back into, you know, the various ages that we know of. But what languages they spoke is completely lost because there are no re no recordings. With a shame. Yes, example, yeah. there are just a few instances of, you know, place names and so on where we get hints of that older language. Yeah, yeah. So we can't infer pronunciation uh, or even what the language was in the absence of written records, of course. The earliest writing in Britain, rune stones, or or would you date it to Roman wax tablets from the first century? Uh... There are two strands, aren't there? I mean, the, the Romans come across, and they are completely literate, yes. and so there are lots and lots of uh, Latin inscriptions all over the place uh, dating from that period, uh, and that's important uh, because when we get on to talking about Old English, the influence of of Latin is is very critical. But uh, when it comes to Anglo-Saxon, one of the earliest, perhaps even the earliest, although, you know, discoveries are being made all the time, uh, inscription that we have was found on a, a piece of bone and comes from the early 400s. The inscription on the piece of bone is in runic letters. Yes, in runic letters, mm. letters of the Scandinavian um, peoples is Raihan, R-A-I-H-A-N, Raihan. It's the word for a roe deer. And it was inscribed on this piece of bone, this piece of ankle bone. It was the ankle bone of a roe deer. Now, why would anybody write the name on a bone? And that's caused immense speculation. My theory is that it was all part of a game. You know, what do you play when there's no internet and no television or anything? Um, and in those days, and it's a game that is uh, done quite often around the world, find the something. You know, you, you have a, a target entity and you put it in a bag with lots of other entities and you put your hand in and you've got to bring out the target one. And, uh, of course, you know, a lot of the time you'll fail and then somebody will bring the target one and you win. My guess is that something like this happened. Anglo-Saxons were, were, were playing this game and somebody brings out, the, and the game is find the ankle bone of the roe deer. And somebody brings it out and says, I found it. And somebody else says, no, you haven't. That's not it. And the guy says, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. And they have a big row about it. I know we'll solve how to solve the problem, says somebody. Let's write the name roe deer on the ankle bone. And then there'll be no doubts about it. So that's my theory about why somebody wrote that runic inscription on that particular bone. So not evidence that they were into um, constructing museums and having museum displays. <laughs> no, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, do we know anything about the uh, the runic phonology? Just out of curiosity. Um, well, yeah, th those people who actually you know, study runes, yes, they've got a, I mean, it's a big subject. <laughs> it's not a subject that I've ever really gone into very much, except insofar as it impinges on English. And there are a couple of very important um, aspects of this, which we can get onto, and perhaps we should get onto it, because the interesting thing about the, when when old, 
Old English was first written down is that there is this lovely mixture of influences from Latin on the one hand and runic alphabets on the other. What seems to have happened is this. I mentioned that the boats come in in 449 AD, but we don't get any real signs of written Old English apart from these odd inscriptions until a couple of hundred years later. And this is when the missionaries, the Catholic missionaries that were trying to bring Christianity into the country, wrote the language down for the first time. And what they did was, because they were all fluent in Latin, they used the Latin alphabet. And Latin was a pretty phonetic language. And so an awful lot of the uh, Old English that we can read today is essentially the sounds, the vowels, the consonants are those which were present in Latin, except for those cases where there weren't sounds in Latin for the Anglo-Saxon, the way the Anglo-Saxons were speaking. And the classic examples are the two TH sounds, yes, uh, as in thin and this, th and the, which didn't exist in Latin. And so they had to find symbols for them. And they went to the runic alphabet in order to find those symbols. And so the two symbols that you get, one is called thorn for the voiceless one, and the other is called eth uh, for the voiced one. Um, these symbols come from the runic tradition, as well as the sound for eh. Now, eh, eh, eh. We have a and we have eh. And in between, we have a symbol that is ae joined together. And this is another outside the Latin tradition example. Right. And then you get this alphabet from Old English, which is a mixture of these different influences. Wonderful, wonderful. So what's next in the story? Is it, is it the Viking influence, uh, 8th and 9th century Viking colonization? Perhaps at this point, we ought to illustrate a little bit of Old English to see how it sounded, because yeah. the, the Vikings didn't actually influence the pronunciation in any particular way. They, they influenced vocabulary, of course, and the yes. grammar of the language quite significantly, especially later on in the period. But remember, the Vikings didn't arrive until the, you know, 8th, 9th, 10th century, by which time Old English had been well established. Yes, yes, for 400 years or so, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. The interesting thing when you when you hear Old English spoken is there's a difficulty because it is a foreign language to modern ears. The vocabulary is very Germanic. And when we look later in the language, we'll see a lot of that vocabulary has simply disappeared. Mm -hmm. So whenever you pick up a piece of Old English, um, on the whole, you can't understand it because there's simply too much alien lexicon there. The grammar is not that different from modern English. It's more a more inflected language, but uh, nonetheless, as you'll hear in a moment, there are some sentences that are absolutely the same as in modern English. And um, the pronunciation is also, in many respects, quite clearly Germanic, and people will relate it to modern English very easily. For instance, at the beginning of Beowulf, you know, the biggest, most heroic poem there is in the English language, in a way, a 3,000, over 3,000 word poem, a line, 3,000 lines of poetry. Mm -hmm. It's as big as Hamlet. When you hear the opening lines, which are probably the most famous ones, Quat we gardena in yardagum, theod kuninga thrumya frunen. What, meaning lo, hey, here we are, listen, we, meaning we. Now, that's very close, isn't it? Gardena, meaning spear Danes, gardena, the spear Danes. In, in, the word in, exactly the same as in modern English. Yerdagum, your, days of your, days of your. Theod Kuninger, the, the, the tribe kings. Thrym, glory, Yefrunon, heard. In other words, We've all heard the stories from days of old. That, that, that's what the guy is saying. You know, hey, listen, everybody, I'm going to tell you a story about the old times. Mm -hmm. You can't understand that. But words like we and in, and in a little while after the first dozen or so lines, 
he talks about a king and he says, he was a good king. That was good, Kooning. That was good. That is exactly the same today as it was then. Was, all right, was now, but very close. Good, good, Kooning, king. You know, you could almost understand that one without any lessons at all. The continuity between the old English period and the modern English period is there in the grammar, definitely. Not in the vocabulary, as I said, uh, but in the pronunciation too, especially in the short vowels. Short vowels have hardly changed since Old English times to modern English times. So lots of these words like this and that and we and so on sound very similar. Are you using the same tools as you used for establishing Shakespeare's original pronunciation? Are you using the same tools to establish the pronunciation of the Old English? Not exactly the same, because the evidence is different. Uh, when you're trying to reconstruct an original pronunciation, all you've got to go on, of course, um, is the written language or any commentaries on the language that authors of the time might have written down. Now, in the case of Shakespeare, the written language is there with the spellings very important, the rhymes very important, and lots of commentary by writers in the 16th century. In the Old English period, there are no rhymes, because Old English poetry did not rhyme, and there are no writers about the language. So all you've got to go on is the spelling of the words. Was there wordplay? I know wordplay was very important to us in establishing OP. Wordplay yes. in Beowulf too? Oh, a huge amount of wordplay. The, the Anglo-Saxons loved wordplay. There are riddles, there are puns, uh, there are words with multiple meanings uh, and so on. But the trouble is that uh, it's, it's not phonetic wordplay in the same way as it came to be later. It's more a sort of semantic wordplay rather than anything else. And so you can't rely too much. In any case, you know, puns are always dangerous ground. Even with Shakespeare, I don't like to base a decision about original pronunciation just on a couple of puns, you know, because puns are very much noticed in the ear of the hearer rather than the speaker. Yes. So we're, we're reliant very much on two things then for Old English pronunciation. One is the spelling, which we assume to be pretty phonetic. And remember, we're linking this with Latin pronunciation about which a great deal was known and a great deal was written down. So when you read a piece of Old English, you can actually take it that it's going to be pretty phonetic for the most part. And the literature about the you know philology of Old English accepts that, except for a few basic areas where there's been huge debate as to whether the vowels are long or short, whether a diphthong is stressed in one way or another, a particular sound like the sound of modern English G as in good. It was written with a symbol called yog, uh, and nobody's quite sure how that sound was produced. It's probably a g a lot of the time, sometimes a y, sometimes other things, you know. So, so there are a few contentious areas of difficulty. But for the most part, you can look at a piece of Old English and sound it out as you think it might be, and you won't be too far from the truth. So I'm thinking now that the period that we're calling the Old English era was as long as from Shakespeare until today, or longer, right? So it too evolved during that those centuries. Uh, so you're, you're referring to Old English as if it was one monolithic sound system, but... Old English is from, well, from 400 or so AD, but in this written form from about 600 or so, up until the beginning of the 11th century. So we've got 500 years. And there's not enough literature to be able to work out trends of the kind that you're suggesting there. The entire Old English canon is something like four million words. It's the size of Charles Dickens. As a result, you, you can't deduce too much about change over the right. period. There are a few evidence pieces of evidence about sound change, 
And uh, especially as you get towards the 11th century, there are clearly indications that were not present earlier on. But these are minor points, in my view. And uh, on the whole, one does treat the Old English period in a pretty homogeneous kind of way. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's the dividing line between the Old English and the Middle English? Well, the arrival of the French. 1066 and all that and and all that means linguistically a huge sea change in the structure of the language two things were happening one was in grammar where before the french came there was already a shift towards modern english old english was was quite an inflected language especially at the beginning this is one of the changes we noticed during that period by the end of the period, a lot of the inflections had started to die away. And we know this because the spelling of the unstressed syllables becomes increasingly inconsistent as you get towards the end of the period. At the beginning of the period, words ending in an or en or on would have been pronounced, you know, an, en, on, and so on. By the end of the period, it's quite clear from the vacillation that everything was becoming a schwa and very unstressed. And as soon as the inflections started to die away, I remember inflections are there to express grammar. And once they started to go, then word order became the essential way of expressing English grammar. And that's what it's been like ever since. Mm -hmm. Now, that was happening before the French arrived. But when the French did arrive, they brought with them two big things. One is a huge input of French vocabulary, replacing that Germanic vocabulary that we were talking about a little while ago. That's why Middle English, and we'll look at Chaucer in a few moments, that's why Middle English is so intelligible compared with Old English, because the French words are still in the language and we recognize them and use them all the time. And then the other thing that happened was in pronunciation, where the French scribes took against basically, the Germanic accent. They didn't like it. And so they replaced a great deal of the, I mean, over a period of time, I'm talking now, of course, placed a great deal of the um, earlier Germanic sounds, the more guttural sounds, as some people would say, with a much more, well, French influence, really. And so pronunciation shifted quite dramatically throughout the Middle English period as well. How similar was was the Norman French that came over 1066 to the Latin from which it evolved. Latin went into Europe in all sorts of different directions. The Roman Empire was vast, as we all know. And the Latin that came into Gaul, as it was, would have been one variety of Latin. The Latin that went into Spain was a different variety of Latin. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of this produces the modern Romance languages, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Romanian, and so on. So the Anglo-Norman variety that comes into Britain, um, you might think that that should take over, um, just like you, just like what usually happens when a, a one nation conquers another, uh, they impose its language. But it didn't happen in this particular case. England didn't become French-speaking. And the reason, multiple reasons, one reason is that relatively few French nobility arrived in this country. Uh, when they did, they had their families looked after by local people. So English was very much part of the home and so on. Uh, French became the official language of the country, along with Latin, for many hundreds of years uh, until English took over. But at the beginning, there wasn't that much French influence, if you like, on everyday speech. So the country carried on using, uh, as it were, the, the developments from Old English into Middle English, but with an increasing amount of French influence on top. So it was English with a French influence rather than French with an English influence. So there was absolutely nothing like um, forbidding the use of the local language as we had in Ireland when England went and conquered Ireland and tried to obliterate the language and change all the place names. There was nothing like that in the uh, in the Latin. No, no nothing Roman at arrival. all. I mean, French, nothing at all. French became the official language, and all the kings spoke French, and, and some of them didn't speak English at all, some of those early kings. 
But insofar as the official side of the language was only in French or Latin, uh, of course, there was no hint of English there. It wasn't that the English was banned. It simply wasn't used. It wasn't the official language. Uh, but at, at, at a grassroots level, it was still there. So in other words, we've got a situation of, of diglossia here or triglossia. In other words, three languages being used simultaneously in a country for different functions. Yes. We're interested in English now, but there's quite a lot of study done also on the character of the French that was used in the period and the Latin too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you gave us a little bit of Beowulf. Uh, are you going to give us some Canterbury Tales or? Well, yes, Canterbury Tales is always a good one because people know the, the opening lines. And I can do a, a slightly longer illustration here because... Well, because it makes sense. No point in going on and on about Beowulf um, when most of the lines wouldn't make any sense without glossing or yeah. learning. Yeah. But with the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, how shall I do it? L let me uh, do it in English first, to to modern English first, to remind people. No, I'll do it a line or so at a time, perhaps, Paul. That would be best. Okay. When that April with his showers sweet, the draught of March hath pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in such liquor, of which virtue engendered is the flower. When Zephyrus, eke with his sweet breath, inspired hath in every halt and heath, the tender crops, and the young sun hath in the ram his half-course irun, and small fowls make melody that sleep all the night with open eye, so pricketh them nature in their courages, then longen folk to go on pilgrimages. I mean, it's a pretty crummy way of reading it, but just to get the sense of it, the rhymes don't work, uh, the rhythm doesn't work, nothing works really very well if you read it in modern English or try to. When did English poetry start to rhyme? Oh, as soon as the French came along. That was one of the big things they did. Uh, and so all the early English poems from the 12th, 13th century and so on are rhyming. And that's beautiful for us linguists the other kind of evidence we need to reconstruct Middle English in a reasonably accurate kind of way. Pronunciation-wise, at least, yes. Yeah, that's right. So in Middle English, uh, Juan that April, with his sure assault, the drocht of March hath persed to the road, and bathed every vine in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. When Zephyrus ache with his sweet breath, in spirit hath in every halt and heath the tender croppers, and the younger son hath in the ram his half course run, and smile a fool's mark and melody that sleep an all the nicht with open ear. So pricketh them nature in her courages than long and fault to go on pilgrimages. Bravo. There was one sound that you did that caught my attention especially. How did you pronounce vein? Every vein, such vein, vein, without with, a, with an ash, v ash e n, vein. Every vein. How do you get to vine? <laughs> it sounds so modern, Cockney, doesn't it? Somehow. Yes, I mean the diphthongs are the key to an awful lot of the changes taking place here. You see, what happened at the end of the Middle English period was that there was a big shift in the long vowels and diphthongs between Chaucer's time and Shakespeare's time. In the linguistics literature, it's called the great vowel shift because a whole chain of related changes took place. So, you know, Old English stan became modern English stone and many others like that. Yes, And they're all related. The point is that that when you read Chaucer, what you're noticing is the pre-great vowel shift characteristics of many of the words. Short vowels, as I said before, no problem. The short vowels are almost exactly the same then as they are now, but it's the long vowels and the diphthongs that change. So the Middle English period, what, 400 years? Yes, it, uh, nobody quite knows when it ended. Uh, no. Most people say it ends in the middle of the 15th century when... Uh, Caxton comes along with, with printing, you know, 1476, that sort of period. So we're talking about 1100 to 1500, more or less. Yes, 400 years or so. So 
Just to recap, the arrival of the Normans in 1066 precipitated the shift between what we call Old English and Middle English. What precipitates the uh, or catalyzes the shift from Middle English to early modern English? Well, I think the Great Val shift is probably the critical thing. It isn't something that happened very quickly. It started round about 1400, round about when Chaucer was writing, and goes on for a couple of hundred years, really. So much so that by Shakespeare's time, you know, end of the 16th century, he would probably have had just as much difficulty interpreting Chaucer as you and I do, you know. That's interesting. Um, a, a lot of change took place over that time. The other big thing that happened was that uh, was the Renaissance. And the effect of the Renaissance was chiefly on English vocabulary. We're talking about something, you know, of the order of, I don't know, 40,000 or so French words that came into English in the Middle English period. But we're talking about 100,000 or more words coming in from Latin and Greek and Hebrew and so on in the early modern English period. So suddenly we get these triplets of vocabulary emerging in English, like fire, flame, and conflagration. Fire is an Anglo-Saxon word. Flame is a French word. Conflagration is a Latin word. Or kingly, royal, and regal. Yes. Kingly, good old Anglo-Saxon word. Royal. French word, regal, a Latin word. And so, uh, once again, these different linguistic trends are producing a language which is much more varied in its character uh, than anything that had been there before. And this is something, of course, Shakespeare taps into. Now you've got three types of vocabulary, you know, Anglo-Saxon words for your ordinary person in the street, French words for your rather more elegant nobles, Latin words for the intellectuals, the Holofernes and so on and so forth, then you've suddenly got an, an immense linguistic palette available to you, which was not there before. And that's a very important feature of Shakespeare's language, it seems to me. I was flashing on the, um, the, the task that English had to overcome its own um, vernacular or vulgar nature and become an official language. So sort of like the way uh, Yiddish had to do on its own back, to become a literary language. And sort of by Shakespeare's time, English was well established as, as a medium for literary endeavours, right? Oh, yes, political endeavours too, because in the 1300s, English gradually becomes the official language of the nation, used in Parliament for the first time, for example. Mm. And the Court of Chancery increasingly producing masses of official material in official spellings, you see, along with Caxton also trying to produce spellings that everybody will understand. And you get the shaping of standard English coming from these different sources. So certainly by the time Shakespeare was writing, there was most definitely a, an emerging standard language. It wasn't complete as it is today, as it were, because standards always evolve. But certainly... No, no, no real standard spelling, right? And, and no standard spelling at that time. Um, that still, that was one of the big things that still had to develop. But much more standardization than there was before. Yes. Thank God there was still some inconsistency that, to allow you to make a lot of inferences about yeah, pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we can rely a great deal on the evidence of spelling in Shakespeare's time but not as much as in the Middle English period, you see. That was much more available to us, that kind of kind of evidence then. But, however, there was one big change, and that is that in the Middle English period, the regional dialects are still dominating the literary output. And one of the big, big developments in linguistic studies in the, towards the last half of the last century was uh, the Middle English survey of dialects of the time. And because there was no single standard yet developed, it was emerging, but it hadn't yet developed, an awful lot of the literature is very clearly written from the north of England, the west of England, the east of England, and so on and so forth. And by Shakespeare's time, 
a lot of that had died away, mm. uh, or at least you know had become more specialized in certain areas, and the printers had begun to shape the language still a long way from modern standard terms, but nonetheless, in the uh, Elizabethan period, you see a, a, a consensus emerging across printers and writers and 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 politician chancery mm. writers and so on. I often feel a little sad that receiving a letter from a distant uncle, I cannot hear his accent in his writing uh, the, the way people of those earlier times could have. That's a little bit of a loss somehow that we, we cannot hear people's local dialects in their writing. No, that's right. That's right. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's both a, a loss and a gain. I mean, if he were writing in his original accent, how many people would be able to understand it? Of course, if it's just between him and you, then there's no big deal. But as far as literature goes, I mean, this is one of the big difficulties in the 19th century, if we jump far ahead for a moment. In the 19th century, that's the century when authors, novelists in particular, tried to write down uh, local accents in the language of their characters. Uh, people like Walter Scott and Charles Dickens and Emily Bronte and lots mm. of others writing their characters in the local dialect and, and accent too. And uh, while it was appreciated for what it was, uh, nonetheless, there was a great deal of criticism. You, you know, people couldn't understand it and, and felt that it detracted from the, uh, from the story. Yes. And so it became increasingly con contentious. B. H. Lawrence continued to do that into the, into the later century. Uh, yes, and uh, indeed into the present day, uh, you know, the last century in particular, we've seen it grow in new directions with uh, Caribbean poetry, for example, being spelled in a way that reflects various types of Caribbean accent. Mm -hmm. That uh, proscription against misspelling is kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it is really, and you don't get those prescriptions until the 18th century. You get comments about pronunciation, certainly from the Middle Ages onwards, you know, the, the people up north speak in a harsh and horrible kind of way. And even in Shakespeare, you get allusions being made to accent. You remember Rosalind in um, As You Like It, and uh, Orlando comes into the forest and bumps into disguised Rosalind and says, hey, your accent isn't one that I'd expect to hear in a forest like this. <laughs> oh, oh well, but my, my, uh, I had an uncle from court who taught me how to speak, you know. <laughs> so there's quite, quite clearly um, a sense of accent differentiation by Shakespeare's time, with some accents being viewed to be more polite, as it were, than others. Yeah. But as far as um, spelling goes, there's no clear indication at all. And when Shakespeare and other writers try to write down an accent in a local spelling, it's a bit of a bodge job, really. They're, mm. they're guessing and they're stereotyping, you know, Flewellen in um, Henry V and the, you know, the Englishman, the Irishman and the Scotsman, all given, um, and the Welshman, uh, all given their different accents, quite clearly different accents, but how far they're uh, genuine representation of local speech is unclear yes so shakespeare's op that's what brought you and you and me together we've covered it a little bit in our podcast but remind us sir uh, remind us how the early modern english of shakespeare's original pronunciation sounded give us a little bit of something yes by by the time you get to shakespeare uh quite a lot of change has taken place uh, in the vowels and the consonants and also in uh, vowels and the diphthongs and also in some of the consonants too and so when you do a bit of um, Shakespearean OP it's so much closer to modern English than anything that we've heard previously in the history of English and so you take a an example like say the opening prologue of Romeo and Juliet and I don't need to say it separately in modern no. English I don't no. think, do I? Whereas I might have had to do for Chaucer and definitely had to do for Old English. So in OP, or at least in a version of OP, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, to our souls, both alike in dignity and fair Verona, 
where we lay or sane. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal lines of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove, is now the two oars' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what ears shall miss, or toil shall strive to mend. God, I love to hear you do that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now, notice that what you're hearing, and remember I said this is one version of OP. This is David Crystal's OP. The thing is that there's no, just like you and I are talking modern English now, and you're sounding like Paul, and I'm sounding like David, and everybody else who's listening to this podcast has their own modern English in their own individual way of talking, their own individual accent. So it was in OP time. So it was in Shakespeare's time. There are as many varieties of OP as there are people speaking it, in in other words. And when the actors on the stage in the Globe spoke it, uh, they wouldn't have spoken it like me. Uh, because I'm using a modern English intonation on top of my OP, mm. apart from anything else. They'll have spoken it. We know where some of these actors came from. Some came from the north, some came from East Anglia, some came, you know, all over the place. And they will have used their own local accent on top of the OP that you just heard me use. In other words, putting it technically, OP is a sound system. It's a phonology Yes. Just like you and I are using modern English phonology, but in the phonetics, we're sounding very different. OP, when you hear it on the stage these days, the actors always ask me whenever I'm involved, uh, do we need to lose our local accent in order to use OP? Answer, no, definitely not. Bring your local accent in, put it on top of the OP and sound natural in its use. And that's what happened in uh, in the Globe in 2004, when the OP movement really first started in modern days. Uh, and uh, we had, in that production of Romeo, we had a, a Scottish Juliet, a Cockney nurse, a Northern Ireland servant, Peter, and, and actually an RP-speaking Romeo. <laughs> the creature is not dead. The creature was not. Definitely not dead, but it was an interesting amalgam of, you know, you could hear him tweaking the accent slightly in the direction of his natural speech. We talked about the rise of received pronunciation in podcast number 22. Um, is that the next stop on our trip? Yes, in terms of pronunciation, I, I think that probably is the, the next stop. OP developed uh, during the period we're talking about a period from, you know, late 16th to the late 17th century. And you hear the differences there. So all these words ending in I-O-N, like conversation, you know, that sort of that sort of word, musician, they changed during that period. So you get conversation becoming conversation, becoming conversation, becoming conversation. The early music people notice this all the time. This is the, actually, this is, Paul, this is one of the commonest inquiries I get these days, not from theatre people, but from early music people really? who want to have uh, their, their Dowland and their Bird and later their Purcell spoken in as close to the local time accent as it can possibly get. So they're really interested and they're interested to notice that things like Salvation, you know, by Purcell's time, had become Salvation. And... That is a big change in the 17th century. So the changes are continuing to take place all the time. So by the time you get to the 18th, the time of Johnson, 1755 and thereabouts for the Dictionary of the English Language, now we're talking about an accent that is so close to modern English, you'd hardly know there was any difference really, except for certain things. And the two things are, first of all, in general pronunciation, a shift in stress, B, 
basically. I mean, the stress system of many words in the 18th century is different from the stress system we have today. Stress is always changing, as, as, as you know, you know, is it research or is it research? You know, that sort of thing. Yes. Even into the late 19th century, a word like today's balcony, for instance. Balcony, right? Was balcony, indeed it was. <laughs> and there are hundreds of words where you get that sort of shift. And that's one of the most noticeable distinguishing features between then and now. The more important change that you hint at is not so much a change of individual sounds like the one I've just done, but the arrival of new varieties of English, and in particular, a C pronunciation. Yes, RP, as we know it, develops as a class marker, uh, or sorry, I should say class marker, I suppose, towards the end of the 18th century. Indeed, that's the big thing. I'm wondering if American English uh, is, is the next port of call, leading us to the global Englishes. I mean, with regard to American English, it's always a tricky thing for a dialect coach like me to, when we have an American revolutionary film on our hands. How did the rebellious proto-Americans sound versus the English Redcoats circa 1780? Uh, you know, absolutely big subject of uh, of, of study now. Well, we, we know because people said quite explicitly that we want to change all this. You know, we do not know Webster and the others. Uh, we don't want to be under the thrall of the, the vocabulary, to some extent the grammar, but mainly the vocabulary and also the pronunciation of the old empire. And the spelling too. And the, and the spelling critically, of course. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Now, the spelling changes are the most noticeable ones. It's ironic, really, that just as Johnson in 1755 felt that his dictionary and all the ones that came with it, like John Walker's Critical Pronouncing Dictionary of 1791, uh, in which for the first time he tried to write down every word in the language in a phonetic pronunciation in a very British kind of way, just as the language was in the form of RP, was beginning to standardize. And everybody thought, right, everybody around the world speaking English will speak in the same way now. Mm -hmm. Just at that point in time, America goes its own way. And so you get two standards very quickly emerging, the Johnson-Walker-based standard for Britain and the Webster and others-based standard for American English. And that's been the same ever since, of course, mm -hmm. until recently when the influence of American pronunciation on British pronunciation has begun to reverse the process a little bit. Returning the favour. You are indeed, absolutely. <laughs> and no charge, no charge. And the rise of Australian English, uh, Australia's first fleet arriving in Botany Bay in 1788. Uh, I covered yes. that in my podcast number 12 with Linda Nichols-Gidley. I loved how Linda oh, traces what Aussie and Cockney have in common and, and why. That's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. The interesting thing about these new Englishes in such places as Australia and Canada, and to some extent in the United States, is the relatively fewer number of accent variations, as it were, nationally. I mean, in, in Britain, on average, you get a, a noticeable accent shift every 25 miles or so. Yes. I mean, sometimes it's more because of mountains getting in the way, and sometimes it's less because people are in a urban area. But you know, on the whole, there are more is more regional divergence in accent in England than in Australia or Canada, and so on. Yes. And the reason is because when the Anglo-Saxons arrived, as I remember a little while ago, Angles and Saxons and Jutes from different parts of Europe bringing in their different accents so that English was never a single accent country. And we can tell this because of the spellings in Old English. So uh, a monk down in Canterbury would write the word, I'm going to go, uh, G-O. Whereas a monk up in Northumbria in Jarrow uh, would have written it G-A, Ga. Mm -hmm. And so, and you hear that today, you know, up north, they say I'm going uh, very often. So there was always accent variation in the country from the very beginning. And this increased, as I mentioned before, in the medieval period and so on into the 19th century and beyond until today. Whereas in Australia, in comes the first fleet 
they arrive in Sydney and then spread the English around the country from that point so that the same accent develops around all over the place. It wasn't as if somebody else arrived in Perth, you know, with a different kind of accent or something like that. Right. As a result, you get a much greater homogeneity. It's not totally homogeneous, of course, much greater homogeneity in Australia. And the same thing happened in Canada. And to some extent, the same thing happened in America, too. I don't remember the first time I heard English is the plural form coming in. But today, very much we talk about Englishes rather than English. So uh, let's talk briefly about the many Englishes around the world. We've already started to do that. But I talked to Oxford English Dictionary's pronunciation editor, Catherine Sangster, podcast number 63. And uh, it, the OED is scrambling to acknowledge and record all the world's Englishes. But it's almost impossible, I would have thought, because there isn't just one Indian English spoken in India, for example. Yes, that's right. And the thing about a lot of these local English is we're talking vocabulary here, of course, rather than uh, grammar or pronunciation. And grammar on the whole is pretty constant around these Englishes. There are lots of variations, but, you know, on the whole, mm -hmm. it's the same language. No, vocabulary. Yes, they, they have a very difficult challenge, the OED people, as anybody would. One has to bear in mind, of course, that the OED isn't a record uh, of every word that exists in the English language, because nobody knows how many words there are in the English language. And it's the same with these uh, new Englishes. I've got on my shelves here a dictionary of Trinidad and Tobago English. Um, mm. Amazing work. It's huge, Paul, absolutely enormous. can hardly pick it up. It's got about 12... 12,000 or more local expressions used in Trinidad and Tobago and probably some of the adjacent islands. Vast majority of them are, are slangy terms which uh, make that variety exactly what it is. Yes. But you never get that sort of thing encountered in the other dictionaries. You know, they, it's just a little bit too, too remote from general use. Well, we said at the top of the hour, uh, will we be able to cover this uh, amazing journey in an hour? And I, I think we've done a pretty damn good job, or you have at least. So, David, thanks once again. Thanks for joining me. Been a pleasure, Paul. Till next time. Bye-bye. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, David Crystal. To learn more about him and his work, he has several new books out now, adding to the more than 100 he has already published. Go to paulmeyer.com. Choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar and click on episode number 68. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, or X if you prefer the new name, at Dialect Paul. Join me again next month on In a Manner of Speaking.